Well, I figured I would start with this prayer. This is a great book called The Valley of Vision. If you feel like your prayer life is stifled, not very mature, these prayers are excellent. So I encourage you to pray with me. God of my end, it is my greatest, noblest pleasure to be acquainted with thee and with my rational, immortal soul. It is sweet and entertaining to look into my being when all my powers and passions are united and engaged in pursuit of thee. When my soul longs and passionately breathes after conformity to thee and the full enjoyment of thee. No hours pass away with so much pleasure as those spent in communion with thee and with my heart. Oh, how desirable, how profitable to the Christian life is a spirit of holy watchfulness and godly jealousy over myself, when my soul is afraid of nothing except grieving and offending thee, the blessed God, my Father and friend, whom I then love and long to please rather than be happy in myself. Knowing as I do that this is the pious temper, worthy of the highest ambition and closest pursuit of intelligent creatures and holy Christians, May my joy derive from glorifying and delighting thee. I long to fill all my time for thee, whether at home or in the way, to place all my concerns in thy hands, to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own. Help me to live to thee forever, (coughs) to make thee my last and only end, so that I may never more in one instance love my sinful self. Amen. All right. Well, hopefully you're in Ephesians uh, 6, 5 through 9. And I confess to you, I did not get as much time as I would have liked to study for this passage. But hopefully the many years that I have spent studying the Bible will aid me in the time that we have together. So uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. This is a somewhat difficult topic in our current day and age, a tender and maybe hot topic to some degree. It says, I still hear pages, so I'll wait. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Why? So it says slaves. Yours said slaves. Yes. Okay. So uh, the ESV editorially chose to not use that word because of sort of the baggage that surrounds it in America and in the English language. But that is probably a better and more proper interpretation. It would be a more literal interpretation, okay? 
So this word <coughs> bondservant, if you're using the ESV, is the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. And it is a very, very common word in the New Testament. If you do a uh, word search on it, actually, we're going to be looking at Matthew 25 today in my sermon, the parable of the talents. And in that parable, it's the same word, doulos. It's the word slave. So you have this master who gives to his servants uh, these talents for them to steward and manage while he's gone. And actually the word there is slaves. Now there is another word in the New, Te- uh, in the New Testament in Greek for servant. And I don't know why I can't think of it right now. It's... Um, what? No, no, that, that is that is one that is one who serves, but there's even another one. Hang on one second. Give me one second and I'll pull it up. Uh, well, that's the reason I asked because I wasn't sure if it was the other, if there was a different one because of ESV or which one was, you know what I mean? Yeah. So oiketai is another word for servant, but yeah, diakonon is another word or diakonos. So there are a couple of words for this. This word in particular does mean somebody who is not paid, right? They are a slave. Um, So that's why this is a little bit challenging, right? So you have uh, this verse here, verse 5, that says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So what is the command? The command to slaves is to obey. Now, just viscerally, how does that make you feel? Like, the fact that... You, go ahead. I was going to say, well, uh, well, for my time in public school, not very well. <laughs> but, right? But for my time now, it's like... I mean, yeah, like one of the predominant features of our culture right now is this idea that like America's original sin was racism and slavery. And uh, there is certainly some validity to that uh, in the sense that racism is a great evil. And, uh, you know, it's clearly infected and affected our culture to a great deal. And that is tragic. Um, One of the things that we should probably understand is that uh, slavery in the ancient world was different than slavery in you know, the modern Western world. Does anybody know the difference? Intentionality, um, to some extent, right? Some people would be an indentured, like, I guess what I was asking about this, that word, because some would sell themselves into slavery for a year or whatever it was because they had to be taken care of and they would be taken care of, and there's that aspect of it, and others were, you know, they didn't have a choice. Yeah, and that's certainly an element, and we should discuss that. I was thinking more significantly that uh, when you get to slavery in, like, the modern Western world, it is all based on skin color. Uh, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's race-based because you're dealing with, you know, all kinds of people from the African continent in particular and so it's, it, it doesn't even have to do with race. It has to do strictly with the color of your skin, right? And so that's, that's a big, big difference. And connected to that was this idea that essentially people with dark skin are 
inferior to people with white skin. That was not the case in the Roman world. That's not how they viewed it. It was simply there were a couple things that could cause you to end up in slavery in the ancient world. One, you could sell yourself, right? You literally couldn't afford to pay your bills. And so you would become an indentured servant. And uh, essentially for your food and your living and your provision, you would work, but without pay. The other one was you could, be, you could lose in a battle, right? So the Romans, when they conquered other countries, they would take those who fought in those wars and they would put them into slavery, right? Um, the, yeah, so th those are the two, two big ones. So you could have, it didn't matter your skin color, it didn't matter your race. You could end up in slavery regardless. Go back to America in the early 1800s, you're not gonna find any white people in slavery, right? Because it was all based on uh, race and skin color. So that's a big, big difference. And if you go down to verse nine, what you see, see there is that that's indefensible biblically because what is, what is building a hierarchy in your culture based on skin color? What word do you see at the end of verse 9? No, partiality. Partiality, right? Some people are better than others just based on the color of their skin. Well, that's absurd. And... Um, God is very clear in his word that all people are made in his image, okay? So, you know, tragically, there is a bit of a history here where the church in America actually was defending American race-oriented slavery based on the text of the Bible. Was that handling scripture appropriately? Absolutely not, right? I mean... Even, even if you wanted to come here to verse 5 and say, look, the Bible says to slaves, obey your earthly masters. Uh, you get into a problem as soon as you keep reading it and get down to verse 9. Right? So I suspect that... I want to be careful here because you have even guys like Jonathan Edwards who owned slaves supposedly and he was he was a pretty legit guy but this was clearly an area of serious blindness in the church if it was giving any support to this idea of slavery based on race or skin color um, that's a great evil that uh, was not appropriate for the church to defend now having said that is slavery inherently against God's law? It can't be because otherwise he would never regulate it. Right. And even in the Old Testament, it was it was uh, it was mentioned that something that could uh, that could legitimately happen. And then it even said that if the slave wanted to stay forever with his master, he could get his ear pierced and then just. He enjoyed being there so much. He was well treated, and he loved his master, so he could just say, "I'm going to be a slave for my whole life." Yeah. So this is a very interesting thing for us to talk about. The fact of the matter is, you cannot find any place in the Bible that wholesale condemns the concept of slavery. Period. What? Well, I was just going to say, is it, do you think it's because of the Westernized idea of the freedoms that we have that we see servitude? completely out of whack from where the rest of the world did or is it a time to, you know, because of we value freedom so much that slavery in even good 
situations, I say situations where it may be saving families' lives because they've done this. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Is if you think that has an aspect of westernized idea of freedoms and, and authority? There's probably a lot caught up in this. I think, uh, obviously, when you racialize it, you create a big, big problem, right? Because driving that racial aspect is a claim that some are inferior and others are superior. So that's a huge problem. That's not, that's not like a, a, a Caucasian thing. I mean, there's that, that's gone on through history. I mean, all, all different ethnicities, right? It's not like we created that in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, no, that's that's totally true. Um, but that's that is a part of how we as a culture in America, gotcha. you know, we, we just we can't like step aside from that. But you're right. I mean, uh, all over the world, you have different ethnic groups claiming superiority over other ethnic groups. That's inevitable. <coughs> um, but but probably another piece of this is uh, <laughs> if we're really honest, Okay, if we take the concept of a bond servant or a slave being under the care of the master in exchange for labor, we have replaced that entire system with, do you know what? Did someone say it? Not the workforce. I would say the welfare state. So in ancient times, there was, no, there was no social safety net. There was no government that you could go to and say, I need help with this. So what would you do? You would go find the wealthy person in town and say, I can't feed my kids. Can I become your slave? And in exchange, you would have housing and you would have food, right? So that is against the law in the US. You can't own slaves. Um, and so what are people indentured to? They become indentured to the federal government, really. Um, and tragically, the federal government doesn't even expect you to do anything at all. You just have to fill out the forms and then they start sending you the checks. So, and that's tragic because at least in the ancient world, if you had a slave, they might have some ambition to buy themselves out of slavery at some point, right? And uh, that, that, that is an option in the biblical system for slavery. Um, yes? The weird question that maybe too, too weird. But do you know what was homelessness like in the ancient world? It's kind of the same idea, right? People just lose everything and then instead of maybe getting the check, they just stay in the street. Um, I mean, we see in the Bible some beggars here and there, but do you know what it was like? Um, do you have some insights about that? Well, a major, major difference that you would have is the inaccessibility of things like alcohol and drugs. So a huge contributor to homelessness as we know it in America today is just the ruination of the human being because of addiction to things that destroy your mind and destroy your life. So if you remove that, would there still be poverty that led to something like homelessness? Yes, it would be far, far less frequent because if you were able-bodied, you could do something to get food. Uh, so that's why mostly when we get this picture of people who are begging in the Old Testament, it's people who are crippled or lame or blind. But then in the Jewish system, you at least had uh, you know, God's commands to care for these people on the margins of society. So don't, don't uh, 
um, don't plow your crop all the way to the edges, right? Leave the corners. Why? So that the person who doesn't have a viable source of income can go and at least have something to eat. So it would, it would have been, I mean, clearly there's always been poverty. Even Jesus says, the poor you will always have, right? There's no solution to abject poverty in totality. But it would have been very, very different. And then, I mean, in addition to this, you didn't have people moving long distances, right? You would mostly live your whole life in the city where you grew up. So you'd have cousins and neighbors and people that knew you that would probably offer some care. Um, so, and then, uh, I mean, I mean I, I, there's probably so many elements of this. You can't just go like build a house out of sticks, right? Because the, the building inspector is gonna come and he's gonna be like, no, this is not. So in the ancient world, I mean, you could probably put up some kind of housing somewhere and have some place to live. So I don't know, is that helpful at all? Yeah, okay. it, maybe it's worse now because of the changes that you're discussing it to some extent. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look at San Francisco. Right? Yeah. Who can survive there if you lose your job at all? Yeah, absolutely. No HOAs. What's that? No HOAs. No HOAs, yeah, that's also a piece. I was just, I know it's going to be like totally sidetracking here, but to make it more applicable as we're talking about like that, now they, uh, we have the government that helps poor people, and I, they just have to fill a, a form to be held. Uh, but we still have homeless people, and usually those homeless people um, are homeless because of their bad choices. But as Christians, we follow the Bible, and God asks us to um, help the people who cannot help themselves. Then what can we do with the homeless that we have in our country? <coughs> yeah, and that's a really, really good question, right? And. Um, one of the things that's sad about the whole like welfare state is that it really decreases compassion and generosity because it's no longer my problem, right? It's problem. Yeah, so I don't have to accept any responsibility for it, right? I, I can sort of almost pull a cane and be like, am I my brother's keeper? Like the government's got this, you know, there's programs for that. Um, so that's really tragic because it can create kind of a hard heartedness, but, then there is also all kinds of government problems mixed up in this, right? So if you're gonna decriminalize and legalize drugs, how are we going to help these people? Um, because you make accessible their own self-destruction much easier than if it's inaccessible, right? I mean, people, if they will it strong enough, can destroy themselves no matter what. But if you make it super accessible, then you are feeding the problem. So I think the church should be concerned about this to the extent, here, here's another concept that's maybe important here, is the, the theological idea of what's called subsidiarity. And at the, at the core of that is this, uh, this word subside, right? So where do you, where are the things closest to you that you can actually solve? Um, the, the, the theological idea of subsidiarity says that problems should be addressed by the smallest, closest group possible. So, you know, we don't want some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. determining how the roads in Maricopa are laid out. That should be done locally, right? So then what I'm getting at is, if there is a homeless problem in your neighborhood, in your city, that's something that you should seek to do. To what degree Maricopa Springs or you can help, you know, the homeless people in downtown Phoenix, that's challenging. 
if it's something you have a burden for, then maybe you find a Christian organization that's seeking to address that and you financially support them or serve with them. Um, but we, we have power closest to where we actually are. Does that make sense? Is that yeah. speaking yeah. to what you're saying so, at all or no? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. So you're saying basically if I'm driving downtown Shanghai and I see a homeless, I'm not like um, called to give whatever. Right, um, and um, but for example, if if I can help, like in a certain degree, but I, I mean, like in con- concrete, in a concrete way, I should. Is that what you're saying? Especially if it's like close to me. I am of the opinion. Yeah, this is another really good question. I I would say that if your heart feels compassion and you want to do something, then you should. And you would be, it would be dangerous for your soul to turn off that feeling of compassion, okay? But I also think there is an argument to be made that here's a person, if I hand them $5, I don't know what they're gonna do with it. I don't know how it actually helps them. And so I shouldn't. Uh, now, if your motivation for that is stinginess, then that's the wrong motivation. The real question is, what good am I doing to this person, right? I mean, I'll be honest, one time I was on my way to Phoenix Seminary and I got off the highway and here's this dude and he's standing there and I, I had like a breakfast bar and a water bottle. So I rolled down, I never carry cash. So I rolled down the window, I'm like, hey man, I got this, this water bottle and this breakfast bar, he, you want it? And he's like, yeah. I was like, is there anything else you need? I don't have any cash. He's like, man, I really need some shoes. And I was like, what's that shoe do you wear? He's like, 11s. I'm like, well, I'm 12s, but you can have my shoes. And he's like, all right, dude, I'll take them. So I literally took my shoes off. I gave them to the guy uh, because I could and I felt moved to do that. And I had money to go stop you know, at Target on the way to school and get a new pair of shoes. Um, so I think that was actually doing some good. But if you consider the fact that statistically the vast majority of these people have huge addiction issues, handing them 10 bucks, is that the best way to help them? Probably not. But if you do and you give them that money generously, you're not responsible for what they do with it. So I guess what I'm saying is you could go either way. The motive of your heart is going to be important. And actually that's a big piece of our passage. If you look at the end of verse six, doing the will of God from the heart. And uh, if you look in the middle of verse five, with a sincere heart. So this is a really important Christian concept. Why you do what you do is at least as important as what you do. If you go to church so that people will think you're a righteous person and you're good and so that you can earn the favor of God, you're doing a good thing, but guess what? because of the wickedness of your motives, it's actually a condemning thing. So it's worth asking the question, why am I doing this, right? If I'm gonna give this homeless guy 10 bucks so that I can feel better about myself, that's a bad motive. If I'm gonna give him 10 bucks and what he does with it is irrelevant, but I want him to have food, that's a good motive, right? So I don't know, is that helpful? But are we cool as church? 
Well, so it's the verse in James, right? If anyone sees his brother in need of worldly goods and does nothing, um, that dis- is displeasing to the Lord. Now, you could say the word brother means fellow Christian. Um, so what, what we are called to do is honor God with everything that we have. And we are called to be generous. Those things are absolutely true. In any particular moment, am I called to do something for this person? Not necessarily. Yeah, I, I think we have to distinguish between a call and a command. It, we're, we're more commanded than we are called, right? We're, we're called to, to uh, into salvation by, uh, by God, right? But we're commanded uh, by God to do certain things. And, and the command clearly to anybody like that is to share the gospel first. That's, that's the only thing, there's no fixing people. Only the Holy Spirit can can regenerate and 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 renew. So uh, I think that should be the, the motive and and in the power that we do things and and and, and why we do things uh, with folks, right? We, we're not, we can't fix, we're not called to fix the world. Yeah. And you also have uh, Paul saying, if any man is unwilling to work, he should not eat. Mm-hmm. So meaning. <coughs> If here's like a 25-year-old able-bodied guy standing on the side of the road with his sign begging for money, he should go get a job, biblically. Um, now, we don't know, you know what kind of mental issues he might be dealing with, so that's, that can be part of our factoring in the equation. But you know, when I, when I check out at grocery stores, I used to feel bad. They'll be like, do you want to donate a dollar to Children's Hospital or whatever, you know, Susan G. Komen for the Cure? And I used to feel really guilty that I would say no. But I give very generously, and I budget that into how I think about my money. And so I don't feel bad because I have made it a discipline to give, and I give to things that I know are making a difference. And I don't know what this organization does with my money, so no, I don't, I don't give to those things anymore, and I don't feel bad about it um, because I am thoughtful in the way that I give. Does that, does that make sense? So that's another element of it is like if you come across a homeless person, it's perfectly fair to say, I, I have a budget for this, and I have brought this decision before the Lord, and I've been intentional about it. I give to missionaries, and I give to my church, and I give to these local causes. And so it's okay for me to pass on this. Is that... So there's just lots of things that we can say about this. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, okay, so I'm curious, because of the way it was dealt with back then and the way that we deal with it now, because slavery or indentured servitude is such a bad thing in our minds, with all the homeless, since this is the talk, if that weren't the case, people that were truly hungry would have the option to say, like, uh, you know, like they did, like the uh, prodigal son, right? Even my father's servants eat better. My father's slaves eat better than I'm eating. Right, and they, they would have that option like they did in the old days that they could say, Yes, for six months, I'll work for you, you know, whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I mean, because uh, we know with that, and like even uh, with Jacob with Laban, right, he sold himself into a slavery, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. I yeah. think it would be a neat concept for today that be able to say, Yes, for six months, I will work without pay, but you'll help provide the things that I need, right? Yeah. I mean, Scripture is very clear that we should seek to do good to one another, especially the household of faith. So, um, and man, that's another thing that I think is probably worth talking about that is maybe not going to be a super popular opinion is, is actually your greatest obligation is to your fellow Christian. 
uh, above and before your obligation to a pagan. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't love the pagans and seek to serve them, but I guess if you've got $1 and you have to make a choice between helping your Christian brother in church or helping the homeless guy on the corner, actually your brother at church should come first. Um, because we are a family, and uh, Scripture is very clear that that anybody, you know, any man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. So that's also something to consider. Yeah. A couple of things on that. So if uh, if we do that towards the church, then the unbelievers are going to say, "Wow, I wish I was part of that." Yes. And look at how they take care of each other, right? Yeah. And if you and it's the same thing, you know, when you are like you you have someone in the church that comes. And then you're chatting with someone that you know very well. There's a newcomer, and you kind of disrespect them, stop talking to them, you know, so you can talk to someone else. And you think, look how they're treating people from the inside. Like, no, you just treat them well. Yes. And then they're gonna see, wow, those kinds of folks, they take care of each other, and it really becomes also uh, beautiful and attractive in that sense. There's a command also about the poor. It's in uh, Galatians 2:10, and it says. Uh, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. So that's a command to take care of the poor. So the poor in our own family, like my blood family and church family, and then beyond, depending on the means. Yeah. So it's yeah. a command, that's for sure. Absolutely. Sure. Um, but again, I want to balance that, Jonas, with what what... Paul says, where if any man is unwilling to work, he shouldn't eat, right? So this is not a welfare program where we just perpetually put these people on some kind of subsistence unless they are unable to do that themselves. Um, but, you know, our, our elder team at times has had to say to people, you know, you're coming back to dip from the well for the fourth or fifth time. We are going to say no this time, right? That's a really hard thing to do. But if we keep saying yes to you, then when this guy over here loses his job and he needs his mortgage paid, we won't have anything left to help him with that, right? So those are difficult decisions that we have had to make, but um, you have to balance that, right? We want to help the poor, but also if you are able to be self-sufficient, we want to get you to that place. That was a fun little detour. It took us a little ways away from our Ephesians 6 passage. but So I want to mention one other thing here. Uh, I did talk about how uh, the Bible does not condemn slavery. But uh, Deuteronomy, and I don't remember the verse off the top of my head. I, I should have written it down. Let's see if I have it in this note. I don't have it written down. But... Uh, Deuteronomy is very clear that if any man steals another man, death penalty. Okay, So the kind of slavery that was often practiced in the West, where white Westerners went to Africa and kidnapped people, that is punishable by death according to the Old Testament law. So that deeply displeases God. Um, so let's just be clear about that. That kind of slavery... Uh, is not acceptable in the eyes of God. But you have this command then regarding those who find themselves in slavery that they should obey their earthly masters. 
Um, friends, if you have not chewed on the fact that the Bible is full of very difficult commands, you are not taking your Christian faith seriously. Okay? Uh, on the drive to church this morning, I said, we drove past a Mormon ward. And if I'm honest with you, I just really don't like Mormons. They drive me crazy because they're dishonest and they're full of deceit and they're idol worshipers. And, uh, and I said to my wife, man, the command to love your enemies is sometimes really hard. And she looked at me, she's like, sometimes? <laughs> like, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Like, the Bible is full of hard commands. Actually, I mentioned this many times as we were going through First Peter in particular, these are impossible commands. These are commands that you cannot in your own human strength or will or effort fulfill. Like this is only possible by grace. And actually, because it wasn't that long ago that I preached on this uh, in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says servants. Now that is not the same word. It's not the word doulos, but there is some overlapping meaning here but it says servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust do you remember us do you remember me teaching on that not that long ago so here is another fundamental principle for your christian faith right i already mentioned the one what what you why you do what you do is at least as important as what you do but here's another fundamental Christian principle. Our motivation for obeying God's word is never found in another person. Where is our motivation for obedience? It is found in Christ, right? So why should a husband love his wife? Because he's been loved by Christ, right? Why should a wife love her husband? because she is loved by Jesus. So all too often, without explicitly saying it, we think things like, well, I will treat that person the way I should when they treat me the way I should be treated. And that is absolutely wrong. We should treat people the way the Bible tells us to treat them because of what Jesus has done for us, right? So our motivation for how we treat people is never found in the other person. It's always grounded in Christ. Does that make sense? So God can say to slaves, irrespective of how your master treats you, you are to obey them and be subject to them with all respect. That's heavy. And actually, in the culture that we're living in, that's the kind of Christian principle that will get you called all kinds of nasty slurs for you know, supporting unjust relationships. Now, does uh, Paul here in verse 5 mean that earthly masters should put fear and trembling into their servants? Is that what this, like read this very carefully, carefully, grammatically, the fear and trembling 
Is that connected to the master or something else? To Christ. Yes, right? So if a, if a master reads this and says, oh, see, I'm supposed to make you feel fearful and tremble before me. No, 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 no. Uh, actually, when you get down to verse 9, uh, you see that Paul's very clear. Don't be threatening because you also have a master in heaven. So this idea of fear and trembling, that phrase is used a couple other times in the New Testament. Um, We find it in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Paul says, I came to you with fear and trembling. And we also see it in Philippians 2, 12, which says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the concept here is is a, a sort of reverence. Yes, the reverence. So basically it is as to Christ, meaning to them, just like you would do to Christ. Right. And what I found when I kind of studied the, the submission piece on all the, the, the passages is that you always have it. So we have uh, submit in reverence to Christ when you do that to God. When the wife does it to the husband, it's mentioned It's mentioned also for the children, kind of uh, uh, in the opposite way. If you do, it will go well with you. If you don't, you know, things won't go so well with you. So you have to have this fear and reverence as well in the flip side. And then here it's mentioned, it's like mentioned in every kind of authority system, basically. Yep, yep. yep. So it's always to God, but also the reverence towards the authority itself as yes. to God. Yes, right. So ultimately, the motivation there is, yes, I will submit to you with reverence because I am submitting to him with reverence, right? I was thinking also that, as you just said, that it's the slave that has to see that he is that way, like fear and trembling, and that the master has to make sure that the slave is like that. And I think like it's kind of a thing in the Bible, the feelings and the respect and the submission uh, has to come from the person who submits and who respects. Like, for example, in verse 33, he says at the end that the wife see that she respects her husband, not like, make sure the husband, make sure that your wife respects you. Or the same right. thing with like, even the uh, communion, uh, you know, that I can't remember the reference you probably do, but it says that we, sh- we have to seek ourselves, not that the pastor should make sure that everybody uh, is pure enough to take the communion or something like that. Right. And some churches, that's what they do. They have the, uh, every Saturday, every member has to confess their sins and, uh, and they, they will see to see uh, if the person is pure enough to take the communion. Wow. And all this is like kind of not biblical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, the, it's the, tense of, the tense of the verb submitted. It, it really shows it's active, so people call it like voluntary submission based on this uh, grammar. Uh, yeah, but, but I was thinking about like, we're talking about fear and trembling and submission and obedience. That's that comes into play, obviously. But you talked about the proper motivation, which is Christ, which means that if, that if, if our motivation is correct, that it's in Christ because of Christ, because of what He's done for us. What it produces is joy, right? And so, and that's and that's that's the uh, that's how you know uh, that you're doing it right. That's how you know your motivation is correct because you're joyful in your obedience, you're joyful in your submission, you're joyful in your fear and trembling. Yeah, you know, because there's so many Christians that aren't joyful. 
That's why I bring that up. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that joy piece is significant, and actually that's going to come up in, in uh, my sermon this morning, Matthew 25. Uh, the master says to his faithful servants at the end, enter into the joy of your master, right? So joy is definitely a, a motivator there. I, I skipped over something that I wanted to mention, which is um, you do need to understand that again and again and again, the Bible refers to you as a Christian with this word, doulos. Uh, that you are a slave of Christ. So you are to submit to Christ as master in this very same way. Um, and actually, you're even going to see the master is supposed to submit to Christ because Christ is his master, right? Okay. So uh, the bond servants are commanded to obey their earthly masters with a sincere heart. And... Um, Guys, this is a very, very important theme all throughout the Bible is the condition of the human heart. Um, in fact, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God without a new heart. And we get this as far back as Deuteronomy that says, where God says to his people, circumcise your heart. So as the theology around even circumcision and what it means to be a covenant member of God's family develops, I used this phrase last Sunday, in biblical theology, right, as it unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, what we find is even the concept of circumcision is ultimately meant to point to this idea of having a new heart. So the sincere heart out of love for God seeks to obey what God has commanded. And if there is no obedience, then there is no new heart, at least over the long haul. Does that make sense? Um, now, as we unpack this a little bit more, um, you know, one of the concepts we get here as you read these verses is you know, probably the closest thing that I have to this is like my, my kids, right? So. If I say to my daughter, go clean your room, it's a mess right now. And she rolls her eyes and goes, ugh, and then stomps up the stairs and goes and cleans her room. Has she done a good thing? I would say no, because she has done the action, but the state of her heart is insincere, it's ugly, it's rebellious, it's full of complaining and anger, and that's not acceptable. Um, and frankly, as a parent, I should address that because I don't care how sparklingly clean your room is at the end of that, you have actually done something that is not pleasing in the eyes of God. Does that make sense? And this should, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say the heart was not sparkling. The heart was not sparkling, right? And this goes back to even what Gabe was sort of saying and uh, I think is really, really important Friends, do you huff and puff and stomp and whine and complain and roll your eyes at God's commands concerning how you should live? Because if you are doing that, then you are obeying with an insincere heart, and that is not pleasing to God, right? I think I also mentioned recently where Jesus says, this people, these people dishonor me because... 
Their lips speak honorable things about me, but their hearts are far from me. And so this again goes back to this principle. Why you do what you do is at least as important as what you do. So my daughter went and cleaned a room in my illustration, great. But why she did it was not pleasing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was thinking like, it's, a, it's a good thing what you just said because uh, I'm thinking this could be a tip for us as parents not to be angry at our kids when they do that if we remove ourselves from the picture and see actually who they are sinning against. Mm -hmm. And it's like you, I'm disciplining you not because of me, mm -hmm. but because for God, you know? And because it can become so emotional when we discipline our kids, thinking, okay, you've been disrespectful toward me and yeah. dishonoring me, and it's all about me, you know? Yeah. So then we yeah. become all emotional. Personally offended. Exactly, right? But if we move ourselves, like, you're gonna be disciplined because you disrespect God, and I am an ambassador of God, and I need to address that. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's a good tip. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I would say even, of course, it's appropriate to discipline our children in a moment like that. But but I would also encourage us to dig in and figure out what's really going on yeah. here, yeah. right? Like her behavior does warrant something like maybe being grounded. But is that the best way for me to address the state of her heart? Maybe not. You know, I think to sit down and be like, don't you see that what you did is, is actually ugly? Yeah. Like... Let's talk through that. What's going on in your heart that you would act that way? Uh, I feel like uh, I saw a lot when, um, you know, when I, especially when I was uh, being parent, well, parented, but um, especially like the fact that children are very smart. Like they're very smart, and if you just sit down and have a conversation with them and talk to them like they're human beings, it gets a blue problem. Then like it, it definitely, it definitely helps. Yes. I mean, like, and I, I don't, and it's just something that especially it's decreasingly less in the culture thinking like having a lower view on children and some of their intelligence and stuff like they're smart and you can talk to them human beings yeah I, I would say you do attempt that of course attempt that yeah um, but you also time. you also have to wait a little bit until they are of a rational age yeah. um, because I'll, I'll be honest like one of my principles with my little kids was I do not negotiate with terrorists like <laughs> yeah. If if, if 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 as a two-year-old it is my will that you do this thing, you are going to do it. Yeah, of course as a two-year-old it's um, but yeah. with an eight-year-old, I mean, they're smarter than you know. Yeah, because in our culture basically says like kids should have the freedom to will whatever they want, but that's absurd, you know, because what, I mean, it's hard enough to wrangle your will as a full-grown man with maturity, right? It's impossible for you as a two-year-old to do that, so yes. But I agree with you. I think we shouldn't be harsh in our discipline of our children. It is good for us to help, help them reach a place where they can understand. This is what's good for you, right? Um, but let's bring it back to us because we are the servants of the master. And I want to just remind us that, like what First John says, that God's commands are not burdensome, Right? So we should be seeking to do these things faithfully and joyfully um, because that is what pleases the master. Would you say 
um, that, I mean, some, sometimes, especially when it comes with obedience, um, the first response, like right away, is not necessarily joy. Uh, sometimes I think we wrestle with it, but then we know that God wants what is best for us. And at the end of the day, he is he's it. So therefore, I will submit to that. Although my first reaction may not be joy or make me glad. Yeah. Because I think sometimes, um, somehow he's again like, okay, I need to go ahead and obey. And this desire will come automatically. And I think our feelings can get in the way. And we don't go by our feelings. Yeah. So that's another really, really important principle for Christians is like your feelings are irrelevant. They are totally irrelevant. Um, you know, when God says forgive and you don't feel like forgiving, that's irrelevant. This is the command, right? And I, I, I mean, I can't think of any verse in the Bible that basically commands us to feel anything. Anybody want to challenge that? Like we are told to have joy. But I would say joy is not a feeling. It is it is a it is a frame of mind, right? I actually like to go along with that. Uh, when I was listening to, um, sure, of course you know Paul Washer. He uh, I was listening to a thing from him. He was talking about obedience. He has some college students. <coughs> If, if I don't feel any joy in my heart doing it, should I still obey God? And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, Jesus says, if you love me, you have my commandments. And of course, there's a part of honoring and having joy in what we do as Christians. And that should be um, um, part of our aim. But ultimately, we're to obey God, even if we don't feel like it. Yeah. He, 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 he said, even to them, even though it feels, just, I seem like some great dude who does things all the time, there's a lot of times I get out of bed and I feel nothing. Yeah. I'm so commanded to do them. Absolutely. And and we live in a culture that says like love is a feeling, right? It's some kind of emotion. But actually love is a decision of the will. Right? My, the definition that I prefer that I use a lot for love is to love somebody is to will what is good for them. Has nothing to do with Yeah, with there's a particular word I'm looking for. It has nothing to do with not even emotions, um, but yeah, I, can't, I, I don't know why I can't think of the word right now. It, it has to do with a decision of the will. And actually, if you look right here, notice a couple of things. Um, look at verse 8. It says knowing, right? This is what the Bible says again and again. And then look down again at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing, right? This is what the Bible tells us to do as Christians. It's, it tells us to remember. It tells us to know. It tells us to fix our minds. It tells us these kinds of things. So uh, we are to be motivated by what we are sure of, not what we might feel in any given moment. So fear is not a feeling for you, is that? You mean here with fear and trembling? Yeah. Oh, for example, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think there's something is a comment that's a proverb it's not a comment but there, there was something like that uh, but anyway is it a feeling for you well you also have this idea like perfect love casts out fear yeah. so um let me just put it in another another terms 
there's times when I'm staring sin in the eyes and temptation and do I fear, do I feel the fear of God? No, right? Sin is that enticing. And so it doesn't matter whether I feel or not. I should know that God is a fearsome God, that he judges sin justly, that he has commanded righteously, right? So the, all I'm getting at is like, I'm not saying that feelings are irrelevant or that we don't feel them. What I'm saying is that we need to be governed by something higher than just our feelings. We need to be governed by what is true. I may not feel the fear of the Lord when I'm staring at temptation, but I should still act in accordance with the fear of the Lord. Does that make sense? Because faith is not based on feeling. Faith is based on truth. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So is it right to say, for example, like um, I have a situation uh, and then I, I remember, like someone has maybe was rude towards me, right, with their with their words, with their actions. And uh, but then I go ahead and I, I won't have like this like, wrath towards this person because I remember of like what God has uh, done for me, therefore I will extend forgiveness. In my, in my heart. Although my feeling may be like, oh, I need to reiterate to the person, but then I need to remember, like, what does God says about this? Therefore, I will act. Yes. I know about right. what God has said. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. But the action, I mean, the feelings will follow. Like you were saying the thing with your daughter, right? The fact that she's doing, she's being obedient in the action eventually, because I know for me, the action, and then I will eventually, my feelings will catch up to where I need to be, whether, you know, in my spiritual life or whatever. Hopefully. I mean, as you become more mature, yes, I think that that is true. Hopefully. But not not always. <laughs> I mean, sometimes even though I do what I know I need to do, like the, you know, uh, like walking through a challenging situation, I, I'm doing what the Bible tells me to do, but I still feel anxious. Right, so I'm I'm working on that, um, but yeah, I think as you become more mature. But I mean, even Jesus, I think we can say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying anxiously and he says his soul is troubled and he's pleading with his Father for a different direction, I think, I think we could safely say that, like his human nature did not feel like going to the cross. Now, Hebrews also tells us for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So there was joy in that. But that was a decision, I think, that he had made. Does that make sense? Okay. Guys, we have to wrap up there. Um, Pastor Brady? Yeah. There's one big theme here, maybe uh, just so we don't miss it. Look at the reward. Verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. It's about the reward, right? Yeah. So all the things I do, I mean, this, this is like a big thing. It's a real thing. In the new heaven and the new earth, and uh, because of my eschatology, I believe in the millennium, people are going to have rewards based on what they have done in their life. They're going to have, they're all going to be in heaven, but some will have privileges and, and opportunities and blessings and rewards that others will have. They will have a different one. And so this is also an encouragement. I, uh, I'm actually going to talk about that in my sermon. Uh, but yeah, I would have liked to spend more time talking about that. And I think that because the sermon is the parable of the talents. And uh, one is given five and another is given two. 
and I, it might have been John Piper who uh, has this idea that like in heaven, you know, imagine we each have a cup just filled with rewards, right? Some people are going to have bigger cups. Some people are going to be walking around with giant bowls and other people are going to have smaller cups, but they'll all be full and we'll all be thrilled that they are full, right? But that, but that is, and, and I think I'm going to mention this in my sermon. I think this idea of rewards for our faithfulness is something that we cringe about because it seems contrary to grace, but it's not. And I'm going to touch on that in my sermon. I won't steal all of my material, but this should be a motivator. Why obey? Because you can earn for yourself greater rewards in the kingdom of God, which you receive by grace. That should motivate us. Absolutely. That's what, that's what I think sometimes being um, for those and myself who have been saved my youth, I have more time to pick up to motivate. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Let me pray. God, I ask that we would be motivated from the heart, from a new heart, to love you and obey you. And uh, I pray that the idea of greater rewards in your kingdom would also be something that motivates and inspires us. Um, I thank you that we have the privilege of being your slaves and serving you. And I thank you that you are the kind of master who is gracious and kind and uh, is concerned with the good of those who serve you. And so let us be drawn into greater works of righteousness in response to your love for us as we view ourselves rightly as, as your slaves, joyfully doing everything that you have commanded us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.